today we, we reached the conclusion of chapter 8. We covered half of the final paragraph last week, and we'll cover the rest of it this morning. And this is the climax of the first half of the book of Romans. I said last week that you can take almost every book Paul wrote and you can break it in half. The first half deals with doctrine, theology. The second half deals with application. Amen. Often in the second half, you'll find the reason for the first half. Now, we're about to conclude the first half here at the last Sunday of July. Of course, there will be no teaching about Romans in the month of August. And so when we pick back up in September, we'll beginning, be beginning the second half of the book of Romans. The final nine verses of chapter 8, four of which we covered last week, proclaim the assurance of our salvation. They are the climax of the culmination, the crescendo of the book of Romans. And they assure us that God's plan for our lives is secure regardless of the circumstances that we may encounter or enemies that may oppose us. If we want to be saved, if we want to stay saved, there is nothing in this world that can stop us from being saved. If we choose to remain in the church, and that's how we started last week, God predestined, he foreordained, there will be a church, and that church will be victorious over the world. And if we choose to stay in that church and follow God's plan for our lives, no external force can render that choice ineffective in our lives. Nothing, nothing outside of our own human will can rob us of the assurance of our salvation. We'll finish that passage today. We pick up in verse 35, Romans chapter 8 and verse 35, and it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long, and we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. Would you pray with me, Lord Jesus? We love you. Thank you for your goodness and your mercy. I'm asking the next few minutes you'd let that scripture come alive in our hearts. Lord, let it challenge us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Would you say amen? Amen. You may be seated. It starts this way. Who shall? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. So in the first half of, of the paragraph that we're in, we, we reach the conclusion, in the first four verses of this last nine verses, we reach the conclusion that no external force has the power to separate us from God. If, if God and this is actually, and I've said this several times this morning, this is the problem with me leading service and preaching at the same time because what I'm going to preach tends to end up in, in what I say leading the service, amen? But it, it, we learned this last week, Paul said this last week, if, if 
God has gone so far, if God has taken such extreme measures as to become a man, as to robe himself in flesh and suffer death for our sins, if, if he is willing to leave the throne of glory and suffer the humility of the death on the cross, uh, then he is more than willing to do whatever is necessary to make sure that I make it to heaven. He's already done the hard part. Uh, he's already paid the big price. Uh, amen. All that is left uh, is to give me whatever I need to overcome come this world. So if I don't make it to heaven, uh, no shortcoming of God will ever be to blame. Uh, amen. God's going to give me whatever I need. Uh, God's going to provide me whatever it is that it takes. Uh, if, I re if I lose out with God, it won't be because God didn't give me everything I needed. Amen. There is nothing, no enemy that I encountered, no obstacle in this world, no external force has the power to separate me from God. Yet Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 27, But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself, should be a castaway. Even the great minister of the gospel, the apostle Paul, recognized that while no external force could ever cause him to lose out with God, that it was possible nonetheless for him, after having preached the gospel, after having been mightily used of God, to become a castaway. There is only one force in all of the universe, in all of God's creation, that has the power to cause you to lose out with God. There's only one force that has the power to cause you to become a castaway. Amen. And that force is internal, not external. Amen. The human will is the only thing that has the power to cause you to walk away from the grace of God. The human will is the only thing that can cause you to reject the mercies of God. Nothing else can do it. There is nothing in this world that can separate you from the love of God. That means that if you lose out with God, there will be no one to blame but you. Amen. No external force is great enough to prevent God's plan from coming to pass in your life. You are the only one that has that power. You are the only one that can remove yourself from the hand of God. Amen. So in the remainder of the paragraph, Paul provides evidence, mostly from his own experience, to demonstrate the point that nothing external can cause you to lose out with God. The, the five verses we're going to cover today list all of the possible obstacles and concludes with a powerful statement that nothing can separate us from the love of God. He starts with this question. Who? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The who in that opening question embraces every conceivable opponent. 
by asking who, Paul is emphasizing, I know of no one. I don't know anything, any person, any power. I know of nothing that has the ability to separate you from the love of God. To underscore that fact, he launches into a list of adverse circumstances that will no doubt show up in the life of every believer at one time or another. And it's interesting to note that everything in this list, everything in this verse is remarkably similar to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 26 and 27, where Paul lists the things, the trials that he has endured, the things that he has encountered in his ministry. He lists some of the hazards that he has personally come through. This list seems to be derived from that list. And with the exception of the sword, the final thing on the list, which represents martyrdom or dying for the cause of Christ. Everything in that list is something that Paul said, I've already experienced. Uh, I've already been through that. Uh, and many scholars are quick to point out that, that the inclusion of the sword may very well be prophetic in nature because Paul will ultimately die for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything there, Paul has or will experience in his life. And the point is that Paul is speaking from personal experience. He has encountered all of these things. He's been through all kinds of pain and suffering in his life, and he knows better than anyone knows uh, that none of these things can separate you from the love of God. The things he lists in this verse are tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and the sword. I'm just going to take them one at a time. Tribulation is a reference to troubling times. The word literally refers to pressure or being pressed and pressured by circumstances. Trouble. It wears on you. It, it brings pressure to bear on you. It, it wears on your nerves. It slowly erodes your optimism. It can frustrate your very soul. But Paul said the pressure of trouble, no matter how great the pressure becomes, it does not have the power to cause me to lose out with God. Next on the list is distress. And distress is hardship. It refers, the word means narrowness or being, feeling confined or restricted. Distress is the despair that tries to creep into your mind uh, when you're going through circumstances that, that challenge you and try you. When you find yourself hemmed in, when you find yourself closed in by your circumstances and you feel like there's nowhere safe to turn, there's, there's no good choice to make, no matter what you do, no matter what decision you make, this isn't going to end well. Amen. That, that's what he's talking about. It's that feeling that you get when you're faced with two bad choices. Amen. And no matter which choice you make, you have no other recourse except to endure some kind of hardship, some kind of trial in your life, some kind of trying circumstance as a result of your choice. There's a, there is a, a distress that comes with knowing that 
I just got to go through this thing. There, there's no escaping this thing. The doctor said cancer, and unless God heals me, I, I just got to endure this. Amen. I've just got to keep my faith through it. I, I just got to, I feel pressed in. I feel constricted. I, I, there's no safety. There's no refuge. There's nowhere that I can turn away of escape except to trust in God and depend on Him and believe in Him. I, I can't find any other recourse around me. And Paul said, even that feeling is not enough to separate me from the love of God. Some scholars believe that there is a link between tribulation and distress in that the first one focuses on external circumstances of trial and tribulation in this life, while the second one deals with the mental results of trying to deal with those times. Amen. They would say that Tribulation is what I experience, and distress is what I feel about it. Amen? But the point is not whether there is a link between the two. The point is that neither one of them has the power to separate me from the love of God. The third in the list, persecution, is a more specific form of trouble and hardship. It refers both to the external trouble and the internal turmoil that results from being persecuted because of what you believe. Amen. We haven't experienced as much of that in America in our lifetime as I feel like we're going to experience in the coming days if the Lord tarries is coming. Amen. The, the next word there is famine, and famine includes hunger that is experienced for any reason, and, and some scholars have made the link between famine and persecution. Perhaps the famine of food is a, a result of the persecution that is experienced. The same could be true with nakedness. It, nakedness has to do with being destitute, with being reduced to just rags, uh, and that's another possible outcome of persecution. Next, Paul speaks about peril, and peril refers to being in actual physical Danger. It refers to the condition of being threatened either by natural events or by the animosity of those who would persecute a believer. Either way, when you are in peril, you are in fear of your very life. Amen. You are in danger, life-threatening danger. And so there seems to be a link between these last few items. Uh, they all center around persecution. And like with the first pair, they started with the external circumstances of persecution and famine and nakedness. But now they make their way to the internal ter turmoil that comes along with it. Peril is that that fear of death, that actual understanding, that, that, that mental grasp of the fact that I am in imminent danger. Amen. That my life could end at this. This could be the thing that, that takes me out of this world. But once again, we're reassured that none of that has the power to separate us from the love of God. Finally, the ultimate external force that can be brought to bear on us is the force of death. And the sword refers to a violent death. It's not just a peaceable death. It is a violent death. It is the ultimate end of persecution. And even that, as Paul has demonstrated and will demonstrate in his own death, even persecution unto death does not have the power to separate us from the love of God. Verse 36 says, as it is written, 
for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Now this is a quote from Psalm chapter 44 and verse 22. And the psalmist demonstrates that throughout history, God's people have faced suffering and death for their beliefs. The word that the psalmist used means to be put to death or to be killed. It does. It's not the chance of being killed. It's not the, the possibility that you might be slaughtered. It was actually to be put to death. And the psalmist said that it happened all day long. Now, Paul applies the verse literally. And taking literally, it means that somewhere, every day, at all times of the day, all day long, a believer is being killed because of their belief. They are like sheep being led to the slaughter. It's almost as if Paul is telling those that he's writing to who are enduring persecution and suffering and death, uh, all the stuff that the previous verse talked about. It's almost as if he's saying to them, this is not unique to you. Amen. Peter said, do not think it's strange, this fiery trial that you're in. Uh, amen. This is common. This, is a, this happens to people of faith everywhere. People of faith everywhere experiencing those kind of trying circumstances. He said all day long, every day. And with all of that suffering and with all of that persecution and with all of that death, the testimony that has been produced is that nothing has the power to separate you from the love of God. Now I would be remiss as a oneness apostolic preacher if I did not point out that the thy in the verse, the quotation from Psalm 44 and 22, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. The thy in the original verse in, 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 the, in the psalm refers, it's a direct reference to the God of the Israelites, to the ancient of days, to the, the one and only true God of Israel. Here Paul uses it as a reference to the Messiah. We are persecuted for the sake of Jesus Christ. Now, the reason I point that out is because one of many instances in Scripture that demonstrate clearly that Paul and the New Testament church saw absolutely no division between the Father and the Son. They didn't see any reason to make a separation there. They saw Jesus as being the mighty God of the Old Testament. He was the God of both Testaments. And they were not cautious at all to take Scripture that referred to the Father God of the Old Testament and apply it directly to Jesus Christ. The first century church was unashamedly oneness in their view of the Godhead. Amen. They believed they could quote that scripture and that it spoke of Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 37 says, Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. No matter what we encounter, no matter what we go through, in all of these things, we are still more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. We're, we're not merely undefeated. 
We're not merely not beaten down by the terrible trying circumstances that we encounter in this life. We overcome them. We conquer every one of them. But Paul goes even further than that. Not just that we're not defeated. Not just that we overcome. We don't just conquer adverse circumstances. Uh, He said we are more than conquerors. More than conquerors. The word implies that we over-conquer or that we are super-conquerors. Amen. What does that mean? What does it mean to do more than just merely survive the trials of life? Uh, What does it mean to do more than just endure the trial and the hardship and the things uh, that happen in our lives? What does it mean to win such an overwhelming victory over the things that seem to hinder us and try to rob us of our faith in God that we become more than conquerors. Uh, We don't just barely scrape by. uh, Amen. We aren't just barely surviving this. I don't believe the church is going to leave this world limping and beaten down. uh, Amen. And nearly destroyed. Uh, He said we prevail completely and totally over every test and every trial and every trouble in this life. We aren't just overcomers. uh, We are more than overcomers. One has to ask how is that? What does that look like? What does it look like to be more than an overcomer? More than more than conquer the trials in your life. What does it look like to stand in that place where the doctor gives you news that scares you to death? Uh, amen. And you come through it not just as an overcomer, not just as a as a conqueror, but as more than a conqueror. Uh, amen. Let me tell you what it means. We are made more than conquerors through Him that loved us uh, because of God's great love. Just a few verses ago, we learned uh, that. That he works all things together for good uh, to them that love him and who are the called according to his purpose. Uh, Amen. We don't just make it through difficult circumstances. We don't just barely squeak by. Uh, God makes them work together for our good. That's how you become more than an overcomer. That's how you become more than a conqueror. You don't just survive uh, the things that come into your life. God causes uh, that which was supposed to destroy you to instead strengthen you. That which was supposed to bring you unending sorrow brings you joy unspeakable and full of glory. That which was supposed to leave you frustrated uh, without anywhere to turn uh, and without any hope uh, causes you embrace a a peace that passes all understanding. You do more than conquer it. Uh, You do more than overcome it. Uh, You're blessed when the devil tries to curse you. You're blessed when circumstances try to overwhelm you. God causes that which was supposed to destroy you, that which was supposed to leave you destitute and broken. He uses it to build you up, to bless you, 
to increase your faith in him. And you come through the trials, and, and when you come through, you may bear the marks of the suffering of Jesus Christ uh, in your body. You may leave it with some permanent scars, and you may come through some hard times. Uh, amen. I'm not saying everything's going to be easy. I'm not saying the answer is always going to come fast. But what I am saying uh, is if you'll hold on to the love of Jesus Christ, uh, if you won't let go of your faith in him, when you come out on the other side, uh, the riches uh, of God's provision and grace uh, are going to make you more than an overcomer, more than a conqueror. You're not just going to beat this thing. You're going to triumph over it. You're not just going to overcome this thing. You're going to come out the other side of your valley with shouting and dancing and rejoicing and the understanding that he is everything that I need him to be. We come out of the valley with deeper confidence in the love of God than we had when we went into the circumstance. Uh, we come out of the situation uh, with a deeper faith, uh, a deeper knowledge uh, that I can trust God uh, in everything that I encounter, uh, and I wouldn't know it if I hadn't walked through the valley. That's how I become more than a conqueror. That's how I become more than an overcomer. My enemy isn't just defeated his plan completely backfires. My enemy isn't just overcome. The very opposite of what he intended occurs. He thought he was going to cause me to reject Jesus Christ, uh, but instead the trial causes me to draw closer to my precious Lord and Savior. He thought he was going to drive me away from God. He thought he was going to overwhelm me. He thought this was going to be the end of me, but instead I come out of it with victory and rejoicing and triumphing because I am more than an overcomer. He thought it was going to destroy my physical strength. He thought it was going to overwhelm my spirit. But when it was all said and done, the weaker my body became, the stronger my faith became. Oh, and the further I got from comfort, the closer I got to God. We don't just overcome the enemy's attacks. That's the promise. By the love of God, we don't just squeak by. We don't just barely prevail. We are more than overcomers. That's the reason that we ought to celebrate the love. There's reason enough in this verse alone to, to shout and to worship and to celebrate that no matter what you're going through in this life, no matter what you face in this world, whatever you're up against, you have the assurance that if you'll stick with God, he's going to stick with you. And he's going to bring you through it. And in the end, you're going to be better off. Not, it doesn't matter what the doctor says. It doesn't matter what the lawyer says. It doesn't matter what the economy says. It doesn't matter what the government says. It doesn't matter what the forecast says. Uh, when I get through this thing, I'm going to be better, not worse. Because he makes all things to work together for good to them that love him and who are the called according to his purpose. He's going to cause it to work together for good if I'll just trust him. He's not just going to bring me through the valley. He's going to cause me to triumph over it. That's a reason to celebrate. Amen. That's a reason to praise him. Verse 38 says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, 
and, and it leads into the last verse, but I'm going to stop right there for a minute. In these, in these final two verses of the chapter, Paul switches to the first person singular. This is personal now. He's been writing in a first person plural sense, including us, all of us, saying we and us. But now he's writing in a first person singular sense. It's just got personal for Paul. He says, I am persuaded. I've been through it all. I've walked through the valley. I've been in circumstances where I was, they stoned him and left him for dead. Amen. Shipwrecked and beaten and in trial and peril by not just the enemies, but he said, my own countrymen, my own brethren, amen, come out against me. Everything, I, I've been betrayed, I've been stabbed in the back, nothing ever happened to you that, that is any worse than what happened to Paul. And he says, I am persuaded. This is his personal testimony. This is the personal testimony of somebody who knows what it is to be more than a conqueror. He has endured most of the hardships that we talked about this morning. He's gone through most of what we've mentioned and the, the death that we've mentioned is the only thing he hasn't gone through and, and he will, before it's over, walk that road too. And he is saying with authority, I have been there and I know that God is more than enough. I am fully persuaded. My mind is made up. Uh, the issue is settled. Uh, there isn't any reason for any further evidence. Uh, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And to emphasize that point, Paul reels off a list of ten representative things that can separate us or can try to separate us from the love of God but will ultimately fail. Eight of those things are combined into four pairs. And, and the commentators lament the fact that for some reason Paul sticks an oddball right in the middle of the progression. It would be a real nice progression of pairs, but right in the middle of it he sticks an oddball. And we'll talk about that when we get there. And then he tacks another one on the very end. But it's, it's, a, it's a combination of thoughts that come mostly in pairs. And the main point is that He's covering the whole range of potential sources of trouble and hardship and making the definitive statement that none of them can separate us from the love of God. This is the last list. This is the culmination of the chapter. And death is listed first because probably because that was the last thing that was mentioned in the last list. And it was the subject of the, the verse from Psalm that Paul quoted. Death is the greatest hostile power that we can imagine. It is the ultimate end of this human life, and it is the ultimate end of who we are in this world. So Paul starts with death. Death does not have the power to separate us from the love of God. Indeed, if you look at it from a spiritual standpoint, rather than separating us from God, death ushers us into the presence of God. Death is not a defeat for a believer. Death is a victory. Amen. It is death that brings me ultimately to the presence of God. And, and it is the ultimate victory for a believer. Because of the great love of God, the scripture said that death has lost its power. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your power? It will never separate us. It may separate us from this life. 
It may separate us from loved ones, but it will never separate us from God. Amen. And I said it comes in pairs. Life is paired with death. To the same extent that death does not have the power to separate us from God, neither does life. Think about that for a minute. All that is encompassed in day-to-day living, you know, life happens sometimes. It's got its mountains and its valleys, high points and low points, all of that. If death can't separate me from God, neither can life. All of the affairs and cares of this present life, all the ups and the downs, none of it has the power to separate me from God. Now, really, in, in all honest truth, the list could stop right there because we've just covered the whole gamut of the human experience, life and death. None of it has the power to separate us from God. But Paul isn't done yet. Having dealt with the physical world in general, he now turns to the spiritual world in general. Neither angels nor principalities have the power to separate us from the love of God. Now, these are seen as opposites. Angels obviously refers to the angelic servants of God. And principalities refers to demons or are the opposite of angels. The point is that no spiritual authority has the power to separate us from the love of God. Not just carnal, physical, temporal Worldly things can't separate us, but spiritual powers, they don't have the power to separate us from the love of God. Now, it would be prudent for me to point out that God has no opposite. God isn't included in this. The devil, Satan himself, falls in the category of spiritual beings that were created by God. He was an angel. Amen. He was a servant of God. And he doesn't have the power in and of himself to separate you from the love of God. He falls under that heading of principalities. Amen. He's just as subject to the authority of God as angels are. He does not have the power. I had somebody tell me one time, Brother McCall, I just don't have any choice. The devil's got me. He's got to hold him. And he's going, I I can't, I don't have the power to overcome him. He's got me. and And that's just the way it is. I'm going to be lost no matter what I do. That's not a truth, my friend. That's the biggest lie that hell ever conceived. The devil doesn't have the power to cause you to go to hell. He doesn't have the power to separate you from the love of God. It's not within the realm of his authority. He's nothing more than a fallen angel. And spiritual authorities don't have the power to separate you from the presence of God, from the love of God. Now, Here's where Paul throws in the word that so bothers the commentators because we're this nice little progression of pairs. Having touched on spiritual authorities, Paul, in his mind, turns back to earthly authorities. The word powers breaks up the sequence of pairs. It has no pair listed with it. However, it's likely that powers is an extension of the previous thought. It it kind of goes with the previous pair. If we need to know that spiritual powers cannot derail us, then we also need to know that earthly authorities or earthly powers 
also cannot separate us from the love of God. We need to understand that governors and kings and courts and principalities of this world and powers of this world, there is no authority in this world. If there is no authority in the heavens, if there is no authority in the spiritual realm, then we need to understand there is no authority in this world that can separate me from the love of God. Amen. So powers, although it's not part of a pair, fits into the previous pair. And then he says, nor things present, nor things to come. That represents the whole scope of possible things that might happen to us. We tend to worry about two classes of things. My wife is a professional worrier. She is. She told me one time driving down the road when she was pregnant, was it Rockland or Harrison? I believe it was Rockland. She said, the only thing that I'm worried about is the thing that I've forgotten to worry about professional warrior we worry about two classes of things we worry about things that are currently happening to us and we worry about things that have not yet happened but might come to pass then if you're a professional warrior you worry about the things that you haven't thought of that might come to pass that you aren't even worrying about amen that that is encompassed in things present and things to come. Everything that is going to occur. Everything that is going to happen. What we need to know is that there's no need to worry about it. God has it in control. God's going to work it out. No present circumstance, no present situation, and no future circumstance will ever have the power to separate me from the love of God. Nothing is going to happen to me either in my present or in my future that has the ability to separate me from the love of God. Verse 40 says, Nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The final pair is a spatial reference. Neither the highest height nor the deepest depth not the highest height and the deepest depth can separate us from the love of God. That pairing embraces the entire universe. No matter how high you go, no matter how far above the earth you go, no matter how far out into outer space you want to go, there's nothing there that can separate you from the love of God. And no matter how deep below the surface of the earth you want to go, no matter if you want to go all the way to the very center, to the core of the earth, there's nothing there that has the power to separate you from the love of God. Having covered just about everything that you can think of, Paul realized there were going to be some of you that were going to try to conceive of something that was outside of this list. So at the end, he puts a catch-all. It includes any other possibility that anyone could ever think of or imagine. He said, nor any other creature, any other created thing, nothing. Nothing in all of God's great big creation, nothing has the ability to separate me from the love of God. The love of God, as embodied in the cross of Jesus Christ, looms so infinitely large that nothing in all of creation can overpower it. Now, having said all that, I want to note again, I've been very careful 
to note this both last week and this week uh, about Paul's language. Be very careful to see what he's saying here. He says, none of these things in and of themselves will ever be able to separate us from the love of God. Nothing external, nothing outside of us, nothing in all of creation has the power to separate us from the love of God. That's God's promise to us and is the basis for our confidence and hope and the assurance of our final victory. But Paul does not guarantee us that none of these things will ever become the occasion for which we separate ourselves from the love of God. Bitterness can't drive, the, 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 the circumstance that causes bitterness can't drive you away from the love of God. It can't separate you from God. But if you let it take root in your heart, your human will can separate you from the love of God. Offense can't separate Somebody stabbing you in the back. Somebody doing you harm, a brother turning on you. Those things don't have the power to separate you from the love of God. But in your mind, in your will, you have that power. Our salvation is conditioned on our own continued trust in the promises of God. And that, that trust that, that, that we, if we trust him, he's going to take care of us. That is conditioned on our own free will. We each have that free will, that choice we have to make. We choose to follow him. We choose to obey him. And our salvation is continually predicated on that choice. Amen. Now, some try to avoid that conclusion by pointing out that Paul says, no created thing can separate us from Christ's love. And since we ourselves are created creatures, they reason that this must mean that not even we can separate ourselves from God's saving love. But the believer's decision, the believer's abilities are not at question in this passage. This isn't about what I can do. This is about the fact that no external force can separate me from God. It is assumed from the outset that you want to stay saved. It is assumed from the outset that you have made up your mind that you're going to pursue the love of God and that whatever comes to pass, you're going to hang on to God, that you're in this church and you're staying in this church uh, and that you're going to make every effort possible to stay saved. And if you do that, you have the assurance that God is going to give you everything you need. The point of the passage, the comfort of this passage is that no external party, no third party, and no outside circumstance can destroy the saving relationship that I have with God. That's between me and God. He and I entered into that covenant. You didn't have nothing to do with it. And you didn't give it to me. And you can't take it away from me. Amen? That's in between me and God. This relationship that I have with God, it's personal. It's been between me and Him. And it ultimately, my salvation, that's God's loving will and purpose for my life. And it will come to pass as long as I continue to hold to Him in faith. Amen? If I turn my back on Him, I sever the, the relationship that I have with him, I am the only one that can take myself away from the grace of God. Amen. The final item in this passage is a reminder that the love of God is demonstrated in Jesus Christ. The love of God is embodied in the cross. And that 
great love is not affected by contrary circumstances. It is the solid rock upon which my hope and assurance rest. It is the basis of my salvation, and we understand that. But it is also the basis of the assurance that we're going to make it to heaven. Some of us need to understand that. Amen. If he can save me, he can keep me. If he can save me, he can provide for me. If he can save me, if he is good enough to cover my past, uh, then he's good enough to take care of all of my tomorrows. Uh, Amen. If he's good enough uh, to bring me out of a world of sin, uh, then he's good enough uh, to get me to heaven. Uh, All I've got to do, that's why Paul said, we walk by faith uh, and not by sight. uh, Because if I trust in what I can see and I trust in what I can understand, uh, and I let myself become overwhelmed by what is around me. I may lose my way along the way, but if I put my faith in the fact uh, that he is my provider, he is my way maker, uh, he is the one that has delivered me, and he's going to bring me through, I have this assurance. If he's going to the cross to save me, he'll do whatever it takes to make sure I have everything I need to make it to heaven. Amen? Would you stand with me? What an incredible passage. And what a powerful conclusion to a chapter that has been all about the work of the Holy Ghost in our lives. Most of chapter 8, we, we've been talking about the Spirit of God. We learn how it takes the Spirit of God to become a child of God. We learn how that the righteousness of the law that could never be fulfilled in the Old Testament is fulfilled in us through the Spirit of God. We learn that we are adopted into the family of God by the infilling of the Holy Ghost. And we, we also learn that we've been given the hope that the Holy Ghost is the power of God that causes us to triumph over death. If that same spirit which dwelt in Christ Jesus dwells in us, it'll quicken our mortal bodies. One of these days, we're going we're gonna to overcome death. We learned in this chapter that the Holy Ghost is the earnest payment of our inheritance, that, that, that it is the power of God that works in us through every circumstance. It is the Holy Ghost that makes us more than overcomers. And now Paul has concluded the chapter with a testimony of the powerful love of God, which is manifest in the fact that he has filled us with his Spirit. And as a spirit-filled believer, you can have the utmost confidence that God is more than able to finish the good work that he has begun in your life. He who has allowed you to taste of the first fruits of the inheritance of God, he who has allowed you to have just a little taste of heaven, he is able to bring you to your eternal reward if you will continue to trust in him and continue to walk with him. What a promise. What a tremendous assurance. Brother Ryan, if you come. I don't know what you've been facing in this life. I don't know what you're going through this week. But let me tell you that whatever it is, it is not enough to separate you from the love of God.